Well, good morning, how are we? If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it up to 2 Timothy chapter four. And before we read the word of God together, let's talk to the God of the word, the God who we just praised with such vigor. Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Thank you that we can sing and that we can worship you unashamedly. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning um, you wouldn't hold my imperfections against your people. Lord, I pray that um, you would do what your word has told us it will do. That it would cut deep to bone and marrow. Your people do not need to hear from me, they need to hear from you. And so I'm asking, Lord, that by your spirit, you would take your word and impress it upon our hearts. Push us where we need to be pushed and change us where we need to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. There are really only three places that I've ever been where people just instinctively know to be quiet. And I don't know if it's because of what happened at that place or just because of the the historical gravity of that place or what it represents, but it's interesting. People just know in these places to be quiet, to approach it with reverence, to approach it with some silence. One is Pearl Harbor. When you're going out on the boat to the USS Arizona, and as you're getting closer and closer, you can still see the oil coming up from the Arizona. Second is the Vietnam War Memorial in Washington, D.C. The third one is the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Tomb of the Unknown Soldier is the final resting place for U.S. soldiers who have been unidentified and, and killed in action. The tomb is guarded by members of the U.S. Army 3rd Regiment. It is guarded 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And what they'll do is they will, the tomb will be right here and they'll walk 21 paces in front of the tomb. They'll pause for 21 seconds. They'll turn for 21 seconds. They'll turn again for 21 seconds. And they'll walk the 21 paces back in front of the tomb. They will do this until they are relieved of their duty. Again, this is done 24 hours a day, seven days a week, in hurricanes, in terrorist attacks, no matter what. Something that's truly something to see is the changing of the guard ceremony, though. See, what happens at the changing of the guard is when the guard who's on duty comes off duty and another guard comes on as his relief, as his replacement. And what will happen at the changing of the guard ceremony is that the outgoing guard will look the incoming guard in the eye and he'll say to, these repla to his replacement these words. He'll say to him simply, post and orders remain as directed. Post and orders remain as directed. Last week, we started a series in the, the back of, of 2 Timothy. And the thing about 2 Timothy is that it's something of a changing of the guard. Paul is writing this letter to young Timothy, and uh, he's writing it from prison. He's in prison again. He's what we may call a repeat offender. And uh, he's pretty sure 
that this is gonna be his last time. And we figure that out from the last chapter. Look at chapter four, verse six with me. It'll be on the screen here. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul is writing this letter from a dungeon in Rome and and he knows that this is the end for him. And as he's facing his own death, there are some things that concern him. He's looking around and and he knows he's about to die. He knows the other apostles are about to die. It's the changing of the guard, if you would. And he's concerned about some things. One thing that he's concerned about is the preservation of the gospel. But the second thing that he's concerned about is the proclamation of the gospel. And every single chapter of 2 Timothy, he says this, he brings it up. He says, Timothy, you must preserve and proclaim the gospel even if it's going to cost you. Let me just show you. This is 2 Timothy 1.13. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. 2 Timothy 3.14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 4.1. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. In every chapter, over and over again, Paul says to Timothy, preserve this gospel. Proclaim this gospel. Because if the message of the gospel is going to go forward, it cannot be perverted, it has to be preserved. It can't be put off, it has to be proclaimed. So he says, you have to preserve and proclaim this gospel because here is the message of 2 Timothy. This is what Paul is telling to Timothy. He's telling him, Timothy, they're about to kill me for proclaiming the gospel. And when they do, you proclaim the gospel until they kill you too. It's the changing of the guard. Post and orders remain as directed. Now here's my question. How do you get someone ready for that posting? I mean, honestly, how do you even ask someone to step up to this sort of thing? I I actually really struggle with this. I I really wrestled through this this past week as I was looking through the text itself. And I... You know, if this is the message of 2 Timothy, how do I stand up here and ask you to preserve and proclaim the gospel even when it's gonna cost you? And I know none of us are, are staring down a Roman execution squad, but, but, but how do I tell my friend, who is in this room, by the way, how do I tell him to preserve and proclaim the gospel when the Fortune 500 company he works for has given him a reprimand for proclaiming his faith and it made a coworker feel uncomfortable? How do I tell him to stand a post when he's got a mortgage? 
when he's got to put food on the table? How do I tell a student who's feeling crushed by the weight of parental and cultural expectations? How do I look you in the eye and say you have to preserve and proclaim the gospel even if it's gonna cost you? My friends who have been in the hospital these past few months, in and out of the hospital, and we've been together. We've prayed together. And I know that you're verging on despair. And everything in you says, retreat, go inward. How do I tell you to stand at your post and preserve and proclaim the gospel? How do I say it to myself? How do I stand up at my post here on this stage and preserve and proclaim this gospel? When if I'm honest with you, I wanna be liked. And it's easier to preach a sermon that tickles ears and not allow the weight of scripture to bear on us. But Paul knew it. Paul knew that for Timothy, he knew it for you, and he knew it for me. He knew that if we're going to preserve and proclaim the gospel at our post, that everybody's gonna stand at a post whether it's at home, it's at work, it's at school, wherever, everybody's going to stand at their post. And if you're going to stand at your post in the face of pressure, in the face of persecution, it's gonna take more than a pep talk. It's gonna take more than a a 30 minute, you can do this. And Paul knew that, which is why before he wraps up his letter with some personal matters, he says this in verse eight. He says, henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which is the Lord, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Underline that phrase, on that day, if you're comfortable doing so in your Bible. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So so when Paul says that phrase, on that day, When he says on that day, what he's talking about is the second coming of Christ. We can't overlook the gravity of that phrase, by the way. This is the changing of the guard. This is Paul's final words of encouragement to Timothy before he dies, and he tells him, Timothy, look at that day. Get your eyes on that day. He tells Timothy, Timothy, if you're going to preserve and proclaim the gospel, you've got to understand that for every second that passes, we are a second closer to the day when the skies open up and the ruling, reigning judge of the universe comes back. And if we're going to preserve and proclaim the gospel, we had better get our eyes on that day too. Listen, keeping your eyes fixed on the second coming of Christ, it's one of the keystone habits of being a follower of Jesus. Are we familiar with what a keystone habit is? Keystone habit is basically just a little change that you make in your life that positively affects other things in your life. So as an example, um, making your bed has been shown to make you more productive all throughout the day. Dressing nicely has been shown to give you an overall better self-image. My brother, he's a uh, high school football coach. 
in Florida. And one of the, the keystone habits that he's always telling his players is that when you block and tackle, you gotta keep your head up. Because if you don't keep your head up, you're not gonna be able to do what it is you're supposed to do. If you don't keep your head up, it doesn't matter how strong you are, it doesn't matter how big you are, if you don't keep your head up, you're gonna get hurt. This one little change changes so much in the game of football because to put it bluntly, if you don't keep your head up, you're not gonna be able to do what the coach has called you to do. Now, I think this kind of preaches itself a little bit, but this is why keeping your head up and keeping your eyes fixed on the second coming of Christ is a keystone habit for a follower of Jesus. Because if you don't keep your head up, you won't be able to do what our coach has called you to do. Because like I said, every single person in here is called to stand at a post, work, school, home, wherever. And the message of 2 Timothy is simply, post and orders remain as directed. And if you're going to preserve and proclaim the gospel to the end, here's what you've gotta do. You gotta keep your head up and you gotta keep your eyes fixed on the second coming of Christ. Because when you do, here's what's gonna happen. This is point one, if you're taking notes. You'll have confidence to stand at your post from knowing that Jesus is in control. You'll have confidence to stand at your post knowing that Jesus is in control. So look back in verse eight. Paul says this. He says, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. This is athletic imagery that Paul's using here. They had Olympic games in ancient Greece. And for the winners of the games, they, they wouldn't give out bronze, silver, and gold medals as, as we would. Uh, the winners, they received crowns on their heads. So the, these wreaths that were woven together and, and there were wreaths of, of olive leaves and they put them on their head as for, to be the winner. And the judges, they were the ones who awarded the wreaths. They were the ones who were in charge of the games. They were the ones who were running the games. They were the ones who were in control of the games that were happening. And so because they were the judges, they were actually able to give out the crowns because they were in charge. And so you kind of see what the picture that Paul is making here, that even though Rome is about to judge him guilty and take off his head, Jesus is about to judge him righteous and put a crown on his head. Because you see what happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus' return. What we get is this, this confidence, knowing that Jesus is the judge who is in control. And because of that, he's bigger and more powerful than anything else we'll ever face in our life. So before we had Netflix, before we were in this streaming era, and even before DVR, uh, back in the early 2000s, I used to watch this show called 24. Does anybody remember the show 24? There's a certain generation that, that 24 is very impactful for, and um, I'm part of that, and I think there are some before me. But uh, 24, if you're not familiar, Jack Bauer is the CTU agent who saves the world one hour at a time every single week. Um, and I remember that there was this episode where one of the main characters actually died which uh, was kind of a shocking thing because, you know, she was a pretty, she was a main character. And there was no question about it. Like, she died. You saw her actually die. I think I actually turned to my dad and I was like, did she just die? And he said, yeah, I think she actually died. But, but my, I was kind of, I was confused by this 
because she was such a main character. And I'm thinking, there's no way she can die. How can she, how can she die? Like, she's such a, such a part of the story. And you gotta remember, this was back in the early 2000s before it was trendy to kill off a main character. This was just totally new for me. I was like, what's happening here? They, they can't do this. But, but next, next Monday on 24, they bring out a shovel and there was dirt and they bury her. And I'm like, they really did it. But what was strange and I, I, I noticed this, what was strange is that her name was still in the opening credits. I'm like, that's weird. And they kept talking about her in the episode. Next Monday on 24, her name's still in the opening credits. I'm thinking, why is her name, st- if, if they wanted to kill off the character and not renew her contract, why, why, would they, why would they keep her name in the opening credits? Why would they still be talking about her? Next Monday rolls around, and I'm convinced at this point, her name's still in the credits. She's coming back. She's alive. There's no way that she's not coming back. And sure enough, at the end of the season, at the final episode, when all hopes seem lost, she, she comes into the firefight and she saves the day. And she was alive the whole time. Now, now, now here's where this plays with 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul is telling Timothy, he's charging Timothy to preserve and proclaim the gospel even though it's going to cost you everything. But if you flip over to the next episode, which we'll call the book of Titus, Jesus is still in the opening credits. You keep going and you get to Hebrews and then James and Jesus is still in the opening credits. Then you get to 1 Peter, you get to 2 Peter, you get to the letters of John and Jude, and they're still talking about him. You, you fast forward to the final episode that we'll call Revelation 22, and you find out he's coming back. He's never been dead. He's alive, and he's still in control. And that's why Paul is telling us to keep our eyes fixed on the return of Jesus, because he says, I want you to see this. I want you to know this because when you know and believe that Jesus is alive and he's coming back to save the day, that is gonna give you a confidence like nothing else in this life will. Because if Jesus is the true judge and if he's coming back, then all other powers, all other authorities, all of their dominions, they're just puppets on a string. Presidents are gonna come and presidents are gonna go. Empires are going to rise and empires are going to fall and Jesus is reigning and ruling as the judge over all of it. And for every single person in here who is a follower of Jesus, post and orders remain as directed. Because what you need more than anything else, more than better intentions, more than better programs, more than better steps, and I'm not saying those things are bad, I'm really not, but what I think that you need more than anything else is not a bigger work ethic. What you need is a bigger God. Because when you see that God is the one who's actually in control, he's the judge over everything, well then you're gonna have confidence to face anything in life because you know that he's bigger and he's in control and he's more powerful than anything else. But here's something else that's gonna happen. This is point two, if you're taking notes. 
You'll have greater motivation to stand at your post because you're fueled by grace. You'll have greater motivation to stand at your post because you're fueled by grace. C.S. Lewis, he wrote this in Worlds Last Night. He said, precisely because we cannot predict the moment of Christ's return, we must be ready at all times. The soldier does not know at what time the enemy may attack or what time an officer might inspect his post, so he must be awake at all times. There's, there's this call to be ready for Christ's return because what's gonna happen is that it's gonna bring about some motivation and some purpose there. So if you look back at what Paul says in verse eight, he says, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. All who have, the Greek word is agape, all who have agaped his appearing. All who have agaped Jesus's return. This is this deep, intense, focused kind of love and the DNA of this type of love. What this type of love is filled with, what agape love is filled with is grace. And grace is what will motivate you to keep going more than anything else. See, I've been doing this long enough to know that in the church, we've got ways to motivate you. We've got our carrots and we've got our sticks. Some traditions, the carrot is greed. And so some traditions will say, hey, if, if, you just, if you trust in God, if you obey God, then just he's gonna watch how he pours blessings back into your life. Your bank account's gonna rise, cows are gonna be in your barn, hallelujah, amen. That's, that's the carrot, that's greed. For other traditions, the stick is guilt. Like you're a bad Christian if you don't do this. That's guilt, that, that's the stick. The thing about motivation though that's brought on by a deep, intense, focused love for Jesus is appearing is that it's not obedience that's based on guilt. It's not obedience that's based on greed. It's a love that's based on grace. Because grace says that God took the stick, he nailed Jesus to it, and you get the carrot for free. That's what grace says. This is, this is what Thomas Chalmers was talking about. Thomas Chalmers, he was this, this Puritan from the 1600s, and he wrote this book called the, excuse me, the Expulsive Power of a New Affection, which, by the way, is a great title, just The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And what he meant by that is that the way that you change, the only way that your desires are actually changed is when they're expelled by a newer, more powerful desire. And until that happens, any change that we make is gonna be superficial at best and will probably only obey because there's a threat of punishment or the promise of rewards. And listen, that kind of obedience will burn you out because we're forcing our hearts to obey when, when our hearts don't naturally want to obey. See, that's why Paul sets up 2 Timothy the way that he does when he says that the second coming is the motivation for preserving and proclaiming the gospel because I think most people live in this dual captivity because we're captive to the sinful desires of our hearts, but we're also captive to the rules of our religion. And it makes for this perfect storm of frustration and failure because sin makes them desire the wrong things, but the rules of their religion have no power to keep them from desiring the wrong things. 
But you see, grace, well, grace is different. Grace sets us free from that because how grace works is that it enables us to obey by giving us a new and greater love for Jesus in his appearing. Because when you're living with a love for Jesus' appearing, what happens is that you actually preserve and proclaim the gospel. So here's the question that's on the table. Do you love his appearing? It's an honest question. Do you love his appearing? And for everybody in here who would say, I'm not sure, I, I, I don't know. Might I suggest two things as to why that might be? One could be is that you're a little too at home in this world. Paul uses this interesting word in verse six. He says, the time of my departure has come. The word departure is the Greek word analusis. And it was this word that was used for ships embarking from the dock and, and out onto the open sea. And, and it's an incredible picture because what you see really is that when we fix our eyes on the second coming of Christ, that's what happens. It, it breaks us free from the shores of this world and it puts our eyes on the vastness of the sea. But you don't see that when you're tied up on shore. C.S. Lewis said that wealth has a way of knitting a person's heart to this world. Maybe we don't find ourselves longing for the return of Christ because we have so much invested here. And I know where I am. I know where we live. Some of y'all in here, you pull up to your house and you're making well into the six figures. And yet you have this gnawing at you where something's just not right. You're missing something. Might I suggest that it's because you've got the money, but you don't have the mission. You got the money, but you don't have Maranatha come Lord Jesus. And again, you know, grace is the motivator here. I'm not trying to lay a guilt trip down on us, I'm not. But what I will say is that the return of Christ is one of the best spiritual thermometers that God has given to us. Because the degree to which we long and love the return of Christ, it kinda tells us where our spiritual temperature is. And it may actually tell you whether God or your stuff has the greatest influence over you. Second reason, we may not love his appearing, and, and we'll go home on this one. Second reason is that the thought of Jesus appearing as the righteous judge, it may bring out some fear in you. Because you know that you have not been at your post. You, know, you haven't been preserving and proclaiming the gospel, and quite frankly, you're not thinking that you're ready to stand before the judge of all the earth. But look right at me. For everyone in here who when you hear the return of Christ and immediately fear, look right at me. Because this is where grace comes rushing in. There's a fascinating conversation that Jesus has in Mark 13 with his disciples. 
And he's talking about judgment day. He's telling you what it's gonna be like at judgment day. And it's kind of weird because he, he uses these really strange phrases. He, he says stuff like, on that day, the sun will be blotted out. On that day, the earth will shake and quake. And, and what's really interesting is that if you go from Mark 13 and you flip over a few pages to Mark 15, which is the crucifixion, what you find out is that when Jesus died, darkness came over all the land. What, what you find out is that the earth shook and quaked when Jesus died. So when you read about what judgment day is gonna be like in Mark 13 and what the crucifixion was like in Mark chapter 15, you figured out that what's supposed to happen on judgment day looks an awful like, lot like what happened at the crucifixion. And it was. Because Jesus on the cross was the ultimate judgment day. Jesus was judged in our place. And for those who have received him, all we have to look forward to at his second coming is reunion. Jesus faced judgment so that you wouldn't have to. Jesus received condemnation so that you could only receive commendation. Not because you deserve commendation, but because for now those who are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Because in his first coming, Jesus did not come to bring judgment, but to bear it. And this is the gospel. Jesus, the great judge of the universe, came the first time not to bring judgment to you, but to bear judgment for you. So that when you stand complete in him on that day, if you have trusted and followed him, you have nothing to look for except for his embrace. And that's the motivation. That's why we love and long for his appearing. Because you see, when you put it all together, when you take the fact that Jesus is in control, the confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is in control and the motivation that comes from God's grace and you put it all together, friends, that's how you keep going. That gives you the hope to continue going. That's what fixing your eyes on Jesus's return produces in you, hope that will actually keep you going. And hope is the most powerful force on the planet. In the 1950s, there was this uh, experiment done at Johns Hopkins University by a psychologist named Kurt Richter. What Dr. Richter tried to figure out is how uh, long rats could swim before they drowned. It's pretty messed up. Um, it was before PETA, it was the 1950s. It was kind of terrible, actually. But, but what he found out in this experiment is that if you put rats into a, a little vat with water, they can tread water for about 10 minutes before they give up and drown. But what he figured out, and this is pretty interesting and, and again, pretty messed up, but, but what, what he figured out was that during that 10-minute period, if you take the rat and you pull it out of the water for five seconds, if you just do that three times in the span of 10 minutes, then the rats could swim for, and this, this is just crazy, the rats could swim for 60 hours. 
He didn't change any physical factor in the experiment. He didn't change anything except introduce one element, hope. And that gave the rats the ability to swim more than 240 times longer than they would have without hope. In his notes, he actually wrote this. He says, after elimination of hopelessness, the rats do not die. My friends, the confidence that comes from knowing that Jesus is in control and the motivation from being fueled by God's grace, all because we're fixing our eyes on Jesus's return. Quite frankly, that's what's gonna give us heights rats, the ability to keep swimming. Post and orders remain as directed. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we are thankful for your word and we are thankful for your coming. Help us to be a people who love and long for your coming and for your presence. And even now as your son has taught us, may your kingdom come and may your will be done, but not our will, only yours alone. In Jesus' name, amen.